Yevamos Perk Aleph Mishnah Dalid 1-4. This is actually a rather famous Mishnah. The Mishnah starts out by saying that even though we had just so far in Masechta learned that in a scenario where one of the wives is forbidden to the would-be Yavam because of some forbidden incestuous relationship, so too are her co-wives, the Tsaros, also exempt from even more Chalitza. However, our mission now says that's actually not a uh, universally agreed-upon principle. Beishamai matirin hatsaros la'achim. Beishamai say no. While it's true, of course, that you can't marry your own daughter to the Yibam or something like that, but her co-wife is absolutely permitted. Uveis Hillel Osrin. It's Beis Hillel who says no, just as the daughter or whoever it is is forbidden, so too are the Tsaros, the co-wives. Allah, of course, is like Beis Hillel, and that's the Mishnah presented it, but now we actually say that Beis Shammai disagreed. So now, we're not going to say, well, what happens, what are the consequences of that machlokas, which is actually uh, more involved than one would realize. So, to understand this Mishnah, just a moment of background, a woman who is a divorcee, a grusha, is forbidden to marry a Kohen. Now, the rabbi said that chalitza is very similar to divorce, and therefore, a woman who is a chalutza, who had chalitza um, done to her, has rabbinically the same status as a grusha, a divorcee. And therefore, a chalutza is forbidden, midirabbanan, rabbinically, from marrying a Kohen. So now Mishnah is going to say, well, what happens if we go through with doing chalitza or yibam with this tzara? So the consequences will be radically different according to Beis Hill and Beis Shammai. The Mishnah says, chaltu, if the tzara did chalitza. So what would that mean? In Beis Shammai's world, that was the right thing to do. It's a legitimate chalitza, fully binding. Now, of course, this woman's free to go and marry whomever she wants, but not a kohen. Because now, being a chalutza, rabbinically, she's forbidden to marry kohanim. And therefore, the Mishnah says, Beishamai posted min kahuna. Beishamai say forevermore, this woman, now that she's a chalutza, is forbidden to marry any kohen. Literally, she is a poselet. She is um, invalid from marrying into the kohanim. But Beishillel machshirin. Beishillel says she's perfectly fine to marry a kohen. Why? Because this woman, this tsara, had no business doing chalitza, and if she goes and does this chalitza process, the whole thing's a big farce. She's not a chalutza. She's just somebody who's playing around with people's shoes and spitting on the floor. Like, what? There's no legal standing. And therefore, if she went through this chalitza process, so it's not a chalitza, and therefore she's not a chalutza, and therefore she's muteris, she's permitted to marry a kohen, and therefore the mission says, Beis Hill is machshir, and Beis Hill says she's okay to marry into the kohanim family. What happens if she goes through with Yibum. Yibum, of course, means sleeping together. So now, according to Beis Shammai, again, that's a perfectly fine thing to do. That's what they were supposed to do because the Tsar is not exempt. She has a Zika to her brother-in-law, and therefore they can do Yibum and live happily ever after. If after they live happily ever after, for a while, the Yavam dies, so now the woman has come to the end of her second marriage. From the first marriage, she's a widow. From the second marriage, she's a widow. And a widow, meaning in Hebrew, an almana, is permitted to marry a Kohen. She can't marry a Kohen gadol, but that's not the point here. She could, yes, marry a Kohen. So since this woman is an almana from two husbands, no problem. She now can marry, for a third husband, a Kohen. That's what the Mishnah says here. 
Nisiyabmu, if the Tsara goes and does Yibam with her brother-in-law, and then he dies, she's a widow again, Beishamim Machshirin, Beishil say, she can marry a Kohen, no problem. But Beishil says, no, she cannot. Beishil Postlin, they say she's forbidden to marry into a Kohen. And the reason why is because on the list of people whom a Kohen may not marry, you have the Gerusha, the divorcee, you also have the Zona. Now, in modern Hebrew, the word Zona is not appropriate. doesn't belong in Yeshiva. But Zona is a technical term, um, which means a woman who slept with someone whom she's forbidden to sleep with in the Torah. Um, and that being the case, here we have a situation where the man with whom she slept is her brother's, her, her, excuse me, her, hus- her late husband's brother. And therefore, since there was no mitzvah vibum, it's just the generic iser doraisa chiv karas severe penalty of Asha, of excuse me, of of Asha's ach of the prohibition against marrying your brother's wife, and that's who she is. She is his brother's wife. So if they do what they're calling yibum, but really they're sleeping together after the first time they sleep together, she is rendered a halachic zona, meaning she's forevermore forbidden to marry into a kohen. And that's the Mishnah says here, Basil Pulse and Basil render her Pasul invalid to every Maricone after the fact because she became a Zona. Once a Zona, always a Zona. Now, the Mishnah goes on, and this is the, the famous part of the Mishnah. It says, and this is really such an important lesson for life. You see that Afapisha even though Basil and Shammai have this radically different approach, and Basil say that this that the tsaros are forbidden from doing chalitz or yibum, and Beis Shammai are matir, and they say they can, and therefore elu postum elu machshirin. So therefore, there'll be a difference of whether the girl is puzzled for kahuna or permitted to marry kahuna. So there's a complicated, you know, disagreements regarding which women are married, permitted to marry whom, and actually it's even worse than just kohanim, because according to Beis Hillel, if this tsara marries her brother-in-law. That's a forbidden relationship. Not only is she forbidden to marry Cohen should her husband die, but their offspring, their children, are mamzerim. Again, mamzer in modern Hebrew, not such a nice term, but uh, it's a technical term, which means the offspring of a union which is prohibited under the penalty of karas, with the exception of boel nida, um, in any case. So here you have a situation of a woman marrying her Brother-in-law, not in the context of Yibum, that's an Isra Karas, therefore the children are Mamzerim, and a Mamzer is never allowed to marry a conventional Jew. Um, and that being the case, there's a very complicated situation in the community of Beis Hillel, there'll be all sorts of people who can't marry into the people of, who would be okay to marry in their community, Kohanim, etc., but in Beis Shammai's community, not, and vice versa. Beis Shammai would say people that are permitted to marry whomever, yet Beis Hillel say no, they're Mamzerim, they can't marry anybody, and so on. So, even though that's the case, and that of course would present tremendous um, hurdles in terms of the communities of Beishil and Beishamai marrying into each other, nevertheless, lo nimnu Beishamai melisa nashim Beishamai. Nevertheless, they didn't hesitate. They did not hold back from allowing their children from the two communities to marry into each other, uh, which is of course an important, important lesson. Now, let me just speak out what the lesson is and what it isn't. We're not saying that Beishamai said, listen, if it's good enough for Beishil, it's good enough for me. No way. They're people of principle. If they held something that's forbidden, it's forbidden. They would never do it. And same goes for Beishil. 
The point, the context of the mission is the Beis Hillel would rely upon, they would trust Beis Shammai to tell them that although I say it's okay, it's not okay for you. They trust them that much that they would understand both sides of the story and say that in, for your, as far as you're concerned in your halakhic framework, this woman is permitted or forbidden to you. Um, and they trust them on that. And that's, that's important. So here you have sort of a recipe of, uh, of more than tolerance, um, but actually essentially, you know, pluralism, the, where you can, religious pluralism, where you can have two factions that have really totally different worldviews and different approaches to how Torah life should be lived. In fact, the Gemara elsewhere says that at some point the number and the quantity and quality of the disputes in Beit and Beisham were so uh, great that it's, it's almost as if Nasekeshte Toros, as if they were like, we're following two different Toros, God forbid. Um, but, but it was so different. And nevertheless, you see that they learned, found a way to, to not just um, tolerate one another, but actually to get along and live together and marry into each other. Um, a fulfillment of what the Pesach says, Ha'emes v'hashalom ehavo, from Zechariah, and that's the Gemara brings, that one is to love both truth as well as peace. And uh, in this world, those are the two supreme Jewish values, and at least in Olam Hazan at the moment, we actually, as you see, um, when the push comes to shove, we actually strive for both, but Shalom gets the upper hand for now even. Okay, so that's a beautiful message, an important point um, for our lives. The mission wraps up by saying it wasn't just in marital law where this was true. Kola taharas tumos shahayu elu mataran ve'elu tamein. Same goes their approaches to tuma and tahara, ritual purity, and were vastly different, and therefore... Beishama might say that a certain utensil that Beishil said is okay, is not okay, and vice versa. Lo nimnu osin taharos elo gabi elu. They didn't hesitate in trusting one another regarding the purity, something analogous to what we call the kashras of their um, utensils, and they would, you know, a woman who's married to a Beishamanik would borrow, borrow a mixing bowl from a woman who was from Beis Hill, and uh, they would trust one another again. Not not that, again, let me say, repeat it because it's so important. It's not that they said, if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for me, I don't care. In other words, I only eat, it like, would be the equivalent. What they're not saying is someone saying, in my home, I, I keep a certain standard of kashras. But, you know, when I go to other people's houses, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. That's not what they're saying. They're saying they would eat at each other's houses, so to speak, by analogy, um, in terms of Tumantara, Um because they would trust one another, to, one another to say, you know, according to you, this is okay. But not, but, but not less than that. Okay? And um, good. With that, we finish the first parak, Baruch Hashem, and we go on to the second parak, which really we haven't uh, finished at all the topic we started in the first parak.